Hi, everybody, and welcome to Producing the Beatles, the podcast dedicated to exploring the untold story of producer George Martin's revolutionary collaboration with John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I'm your host, Jason Krupa, and today we'll be taking a look at Paul's song, When I'm 64. Specifically, we'll be examining George Martin's score for the song, written for three clarinets, and we'll consider Paul McCartney's role in writing that score. We'll also sit down with three musicians in a recording studio to sort out exactly how those clarinets work together to create the sound that's so integral to the song's effect. Except for a tiny contribution from John Lennon, this is all Paul's song, and it's very much in character for him as a writer. When I'm 64 is infused most with the spirit of Paul's father, Jim McCartney, who had a jazz band in the 20s. But it's also very much in the mold of a tune from early 20th century English music hall, the British counterpart to what Americans knew as vaudeville. But When I'm 64 isn't simply a recreation of an earlier sound. George Martin's clarinet score, suggested by Paul, but bearing the producer's fingerprints, pulls the song in its own direction. So join us as we do a deep dive into the world of clarinets on this episode of Producing the Beatles. The Beatles had begun an open-ended series of recording sessions for their new album on November 24, 1966, with Strawberry Fields Forever. On November 28th, they recorded a second version, and on December 8th, a third version of the song, which wouldn't see completion until December 22nd. In the midst of these sessions, on December 6th, they recorded two takes of When I'm 64, the second of which was marked best. George Martin noted in his 1994 book on the making of Sgt. Pepper that Paul had known just how he wanted the song to sound when he stepped into the studio, so it's no surprise that they nailed the rhythm track so quickly. What may be a little more of a surprise is that the rhythm track consisted only of Paul on bass guitar and Ringo on drums. This reflects a good bit of forethought about the arrangement of the song. In the background of that rhythm track, Paul is faintly audible scat singing the song's intro. So Paul had something in mind for the intro already. Martin noted in later interviews that Paul often had specific ideas for the arrangements of his songs, and When I'm 64 bears this out. Paul's piano overdub, done at the same session, emphasizes this point further. Rather than playing the piano straight through, then mixing out the parts he didn't want, Paul played only in certain sections for emphasis, leaving the other sections open. Two days later, on December 8th, Paul recorded his lead vocal. When I get older, losing my head Many years from now Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine After this, they let the recording lie until December 20th when they added backing vocals and tubular bells. Ooh, 
This filled up the four track tape, requiring a reduction mix to free up a single track for the final overdub. That overdub is the clarinet score that gives the song so much of its unique character. In the book Many Years From Now, Paul mentions that he asked Martin to write an arrangement for a clarinet quartet, but instead, Martin chose to use a clarinet trio for this recording. In the same book, Paul says, quote, I'd give him a fairly good idea of what I wanted, and George would score it, because I couldn't do that. Even though he was working in a trio setting, Martin got a lot out of those three instruments. His score is a model of economy and subtlety, and I wanted to take a closer look. To do that, I went into the recording studio with three clarinet players, led by professor of music at Loyola University, John Reeks. Okay, I'm John Reeks. I play bass clarinet in the Louisiana Philharmonic, and I was lucky enough to bring along two of my best students ever, Alex Murano and Loban Lambert. And they're helping out today, dissecting and taking apart when I'm 64. So let's talk first about this trio configuration. Paul McCartney asked George Martin, can you score a, a clarinet quartet, which is a standard chamber music configuration, three clarinets and a bass clarinet. Um, and so somehow that got filtered down to th two clarinets and a bass clarinet when, when George Martin was through writing it. And still works out fine. In fact, that's the, that's the uh, configuration that we use in most orchestras, two clarinets and a bass clarinet. So he would have known that from his classical experience. Now, you transcribed the score for the podcast. Strictly based on what's written, tell me a little bit about what you're seeing here. Uh, well, it's a very basic song. It just, it's just a, like 1-5-1-5, one, five, one, five, just going back and forth like a folk song almost. And George Martin has kind of filled out the chords in the three clarinets, the two clarinets and the bass clarinet. But basically, it could be an organ part, it could be a guitar part, and he's fleshed it out for the, for the acoustic instruments. I think that even though the, the players were really able jazz players and good studio musicians, that this was a pretty straightforward score that George Martin laid down a really basic background. But the cool part is, when you listen carefully, these guys were such great musicians that they added a little bit of their own personalities to this really basic arrangement. A quick aside here. Even though John calls this a basic arrangement, we shouldn't interpret that as a dismissal. Something simple is exactly what this song needed, not a show of virtuosity. But although admittedly simple, Martin still found space in this arrangement to add a bit of depth and a few interesting twists. Let's start with the intro. This is very clever, yeah. The intro is, uh, is very interesting in that instead of the top clarinet coming in, the lower clarinet starts off the melody and you think that that's going to continue on, but instead the top clarinet comes on and layers that, which is very clever arranging on George Martin's part. Okay, let's demonstrate that. First, here's the second clarinet part, which is what we hear at the very beginning of the song, playing through the whole intro. And then the first clarinet layered on top. Then we add the bass clarinet, which is doubling Paul's bass guitar. Let's talk a little bit about the bass clarinet, because this isn't the instrument we think of when we think clarinet. Yeah, well, the bass, the bass clarinet is the grandfather of the clarinets. It's the same as these clarinets. 
as Logan and Alex's clarinet, but it's twice as big. And so it sounds an octave lower. So they, they play the same note as me, and I sound uh, much deeper in the, in the register than they do. I can go a little bit lower than them. It's traditionally used as, as a bass instrument, like a, like a tuba, like a string bass. And in this case, in a lot of times, it supplements or reinforces what Paul McCartney's doing on his bass guitar. It's an intriguing mix to get those two instruments together because the timbres are different and yet they're similar. And that's also the, the bass guitar track for most of the rest of the piece. He's just going. And it sounds very rich, and they're also doing some distortion on it so that it's a very fat sound. It's not just the, the, the straightforward bass guitar. But it's not doubled with this instrument, which, again, as I said, has a slightly different timbre. And it would have been much richer if they had done that. But instead, the bass clarinet is acting like the other two clarinets, and he's just doing... Just holding on to the chords, again, like on an organ. Martin also doubled Paul's bass at the end of each bridge. I put the bass and drums in the middle here, and our recording of the bass clarinet on the right. He also used it for a kind of punctuation. The thing that I liked about when I, I had to transcribe this, I was looking at this one section that's the, the background for Will You Still Need Me, Will You Still Feed Me? And it sounds like the three clarinets, the, the two clarinets and the bass clarinet, are playing together, but they're not. And it creates an interesting texture because these guys, da, 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 the quarter notes, these guys are playing long notes and the bass clarinet is playing very pointed notes. So let's play all long notes, and this is what it sounds like. It's kind of boring sounding. One, two, one, two, three. <laughs> That's very mellow sounding, but what's on the record is this. Two, three. So by them playing longer notes and me playing more separated notes, it creates this conflict or clash, but actually goes together. It, it makes for a really unique texture that you don't realize, you just take for granted when you're hearing it in the, in the mix of the tune. And finally, Martin added some variation in the third verse. For the first two verses, the clarinets are doing mostly the same thing, but in the third verse, Martin has the lead clarinet play a counter melody to Paul's vocal. Now, we've been demonstrating our points so far with our own recording, but I'm going to play this part from the original recording George Martin did to highlight the way the clarinets jazzed up their parts here. This isn't the kind of thing an arranger writes, it comes from the personalities of the players. Send me a postcard, drop me a line. Stating point of view Indicate precisely what you mean to say You're sincerely wasting away Give me your answer. Having written the score, Martin set a studio date for December 21st, 1966, conducting three clarinetists in EMI Studio 2. These players were Robert Burns and Henry McKenzie on the clarinets and Frank Reedy on bass clarinet. You see, um, as a clarinet player, 
and even though I love the Beatles, I'm I'm really latching on to these obscure three guys that played this this chart. They're from different backgrounds. One guy played with Benny Goodman and Barbara Streisand and lots of different people, saxophone and clarinet and, and other instruments. The, the, all three of the, the people who played had long careers. If you look up their, their, their background, they, they played for 30 years at a very high level. The third guy really intrigues me because he was the bass clarinet player. His name is Frank Reedy. And he played with a lot of different groups, jazz and classical. He played in the London Symphony Orchestra for a while. But the coolest thing of all is he played the saxophone on 100-plus episodes of The Muppet Show. So the, the crazy saxophone character that they had, that's Frank Reedy. Regarding the song itself, we should talk about context. <laughs> First, in addition to echoes of English Music Hall, When I'm 64 picks up on Paul's affection for Tin Pan Alley and show tunes instilled in him by his father. This first appears on record with A Taste of Honey on the Beatles' first album, Until There Was You on their second album. It eventually carried through into Paul's own writing. Good Day Sunshine on Revolver is a step in this direction, and Your Mother Should Know for Magical Mystery Tour and Honey Pie from the White Album are both cut from the same cloth as when I'm 64. It's also worth noting that, in the 1960s, pop music throwbacks to the 20s and 30s were not uncommon. The trad jazz movement in Britain, which lionized so-called traditional, mostly New Orleans jazz, had been building since the 1940s. Trad, as the music papers called it, finally had its day in the early 60s, with numerous bands between 1960 and 62 racking up hits on the British charts. A couple even made the unlikely jump to the American charts. Trad was eventually supplanted by Beatlemania and the explosion of talent from Liverpool, but not before it gave George Martin his first number one hit. In 1961, Martin first topped the charts with the recording you're hearing now, You're Driving Me Crazy by The Temperance Seven. I'll always place a blame, dear, on nobody but you. You, you're driving me what did I do? Oh, what did I do? As the decade continued, that 1920s and 30s vibe could take a different, often campy and self-conscious shape. There's no better example of this than a British recording that became a hit in the fall of 1966, right around the time the Beatles were gearing up for Sgt. Pepper. Winchester Cathedral, released in October of that year by the new vaudeville band, didn't even try to recreate a 1920s arrangement, and its primary gesture to the time period was the sound of the lead singer's voice processed to sound like he was singing through a megaphone from a tinny 78 recording. Winchester Cathedral reached number four in the UK and number one in the US. In 1967, it won a Grammy for Best Contemporary Recording and an Ivor Novello Award in Britain for Best Song Musically and Lyrically. Speaking more broadly about clarinets in mid-60s pop music, we have to talk about Brian Wilson and Pet Sounds. They looked at uh, Beach Boy's Pet Sounds as a, as, a, as a challenge or a dare. 
and there's a bunch of clarinet on that album but he uses it in such strange ways this is much more straightforward this is a real clarinet in when i'm 64. it's not it's not distorted uh, or it's not changed around into anything else and it's not lost in a vast texture like brian wilson does but when i'm 64 is none of the above it's not orchestral it's not campy and it's not strictly traditional in his 1978 autobiography George Martin calls When I'm 64, quote, a send-up of the old stuff, unquote. But is it really a send-up? No, it's, 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 it's funny because if you, if, you, if you would continue on with the Beatles' discography, think of Honey Pie. That's such a corny arrangement on, on purpose. And this isn't. This is, this is much more rich. It's not saccharine, even though John Lennon might have thought so. The thing that gives it away in this one, it's one word is, is on the very last part of the song, after the vocals are through, what does Paul McCartney do? He goes, whoo! And it's like he's just having fun, but he's not making fun. And that's, there's a big difference there, that he's having fun with this song, and you can tell that the three clarinet guys are also having a blast in the studio, that this is, it's, such a, it's such a happy song to play. But that's not the same as, as being corny or, or, or poking fun at somebody. Going back to the recording, some of you will notice that something's a little bit off in the clips we've been playing of When I'm 64 in comparison with the version we're all so familiar with on Sgt. Pepper. That's because, in mixing, Paul decided he wanted the entire recording speeded up, which ended up raising the pitch a half step from the key of C to D flat. So we go from this to this, the version used on the album. Martin later speculated that Paul wanted the song faster because it made his voice sound more youthful, as if he were in his teens. But Paul, again in the book many years from now, asserted that he just wanted the song to sound more, quote, Rudy Tootie. In other words, more upbeat, more energetic. Let's take all this in. Given Paul's strong vision for the recording of his song, we have to ask how much input he had into this clarinet score. Certainly, the intro and outro were generally his idea, but the way Martin orchestrated those parts was likely his own idea. The trio setting, as opposed to the quartet, was also Martin's call, and the subtle use of the bass clarinet, as well as the counter melody in the third verse, was probably also his touch. The truth of the matter, though, is that we can only sign off on some of this with 100% certainty. The rest is just speculation, because Paul was becoming musically adept enough at this point that a few of the elements in the score were well within the range of his understanding. It's easy to get lost in the details of trying to sort out authorship, but the bigger picture is this. Paul asked George Martin to write an arrangement using a specifically classical form, a chamber music form, just as Martin had first suggested using a chamber music form on Yesterday. With the musicians bringing out the subtle jazz inflections implicit in the score, once again, the result was a hybrid that seamlessly combined elements of several different kinds of music. In When I'm 64, we see how the idea of producing the Beatles had become far more complicated than George Martin the producer directing the Beatles in how to record and impressing his vision of the studio upon them. By Sgt. Pepper, 
Martin's relationship with the Beatles had evolved far beyond that of teacher and students as it had initially been, and his creative relationship with each member of the band was different. Now, they were on much more equal footing, and Paul McCartney in particular had become something of a producer within the band. Thanks for listening. Producing the Beatles is written, directed, edited, and produced by me, Jason Krupa. Huge thanks to John Reeks for his transcription and his insights into the score, and to Alex Morano and Logan Lambert for their good work on the clarinets. If you'd like to read more observations from John Reeks about the score for When I'm 64, check out his article in the Clarinet Journal. You can find the link to the article on our website in the show notes for this episode. And finally, thanks to Andrew Block for re-recording the score for us at Neutral Ground Studios, a great space for intimate sessions like ours. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PTBeatles, and for more information, including show notes and references, check out our website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let your friends know about us. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.